Hey everybody, it's John Marinelli from ENT in a Nutshell. Just want to make sure you're aware of our website, headmirror.com, where each podcast is keyword searchable and the content, along with our surgical video atlas, is systematically organized by subspecialty. All right, time for the episode. Hi everyone, welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Ashley Nasiri. And today we are joined by Professor Craig Wartman to discuss sales and selling in healthcare. Professor Wartman, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me, actually. I'm I'm delighted to have this conversation. Before we begin our discussion, I'd like to introduce our guest. Professor Wartman is a clinical professor of innovation and entrepreneurship at the Kellogg School of Management and is the founder and executive director of the Kellogg Sales Institute. He is currently the CEO of Sales Engine, an operating partner at Pritzker Group Venture Capital, and an active angel investor with a focus on companies that create healthy habits and empower female founders. One of Professor Wartman's MBA courses entitled Entrepreneurial Sailing has been ranked as one of the best courses in the U.S. and has earned him multiple faculty awards for excellence in teaching. It is an absolute honor to have him on the show today to shed some light on the impact of sales and communicating ideas in both the healthcare setting and in career development. Professor Wortman, let's start with some broad questions. When you think about sales, how would you describe this term? And more broadly, how would you define the art and science of selling? Ashley, when I founded the Kellogg Sales Institute several years ago, we spent a lot of time thinking about this and just looking out at the world of sales as a profession, but also as a mechanism by which we persuade and influence people. And what we settled on as a definition of sales that I quite like as a person who's been in sales for a long time is we actually define sales as helping people make progress in their lives, period. Helping people make progress in their lives. And if you, if you unpack that a little bit, what we mean by that is how might we as leaders, as salespeople, as physicians, as just people out in the world, listen to people, ask them questions, seek to understand, be curious in such a way that we can help them make progress and, and connect them to things that will help them make that progress. So that's really how we define sales. And, you know, the art and science of selling is really built on the pillars of persuasion and influence. And I'll, I'll say one more thing and stop. It's we must think deeply around what is the bedrock that connects something like sales to the earth. And so I'm using a metaphor here, Ashley, but, you know, if you think about the bedrock of the earth is the research. What do we know from psychology, social science, neuroscience about influence and persuasion and how we human beings convince each other to do things, how we help each other make progress. And so we look at the research and we try to understand, okay, in a physician-patient interaction, in a salesperson's interaction in a retail store, what are the principles of influence that are operating, whether it's health-related or a product or a solution they need for their companies, whatever it may be. Right. And When we think more traditionally about the idea of sales or the role of a salesperson, we tend to think of direct consumer interactions. Um, For example, you know, the most common thing that comes to mind for most folks is a car salesperson. But we know that sales and selling ideas 
expands so far beyond that to many of the routine daily interactions that we have. Can you describe some of the other situations where sales or selling ideas is critical, but maybe less commonly considered? Sure. Uh, it, it really is. I always smile when, when this question comes up because the, the truthful answer, which is very unhelpful, is everywhere, right? I mean, if you think about it, if you're helping a child of yours be a better studier, you know, do homework, that is uh, an opportunity for persuasion, otherwise known as selling. If you're trying to convince a patient to quit smoking or to live a healthier life or develop healthier habits, that is a sale to be made. That is That will require you to invoke the art of persuasion. If you are you know, when we when we think of sales, we often think of these very stereotyped traditional modes of selling. You walk into a store and someone tries to convince you to buy that lawnmower over that lawnmower or a car lot. And of course, those are examples of sales. But if we just think for one more second about it, we start to realize that when you're in line for a promotion, when you're writing a grant application, when you're convincing a patient to not engage in those risky behaviors, those are all selling interactions. They just are. And so, but we don't often think about those as selling because we're, and I'm going to say this bluntly, Ashley, many people are allergic to the word sales. Why? Because it bubbles up all of the negative stereotypes, which is why, to your first question, we define sales as helping people make progress in their lives. Because what I didn't say is the moment that you realize in that interaction that is requiring you to persuade someone or sell them, the moment, the nanosecond you realize that what you're proposing is actually not a good fit for their life or their business or their health, you stop and you recommend something that may or may not benefit you at all, but you recommend the right solution to them. That's the art and science of selling. Selling is very broad and, and encompasses so many of the daily interactions we have. We just often don't think of them as such. Right. And since it's such a broad topic, um, maybe we can continue with kind of unpacking it a little bit. What are some of the most important concepts behind successful selling, whether it's selling a product or an idea or, you know, a different way of managing a problem? To answer this question, I'm going to start with, a, with what we refer to as the foundation of selling. And, and then I'll, I'll layer on top of that quickly and, and try to give you a very crisp answer to your question. Selling, like anything, um, developing a prodigious memory, uh, being a chess master, being an elite athlete, uh, any of these things require three pillars that we all stand on as professionals in whatever field we're in, medicine, law, sales, uh, teaching and being a professor, whatever it might be. And these three pillars are knowledge, skill, and discipline. So the most important concept of selling is to understand that sales, persuasion, influence, medicine, teaching can be broken down into its individual pillars of knowledge, what I know, what I need to know to pr practice this profession, skill, and discipline. 
And what we often forget, and the mission of the Sales Institute and all of my MBA and executive MBA teaching, my mission is to break these things down into their component parts of knowledge, skill, and discipline, because it's not enough to know. You can be the smartest doctor, the smartest professor on the planet, and if you can't communicate it, it doesn't matter. And communication is not a knowledge. Communication is a skill and discipline. So let's define these terms quickly, and then I'll give you a crisp answer, or I'll try to answer your question uh, crisply, uh, because you're asking a huge question. So knowledge is what you know. It's the conceptual frameworks. It's disease states. It's the knowledge of the patient. It's all of those things, and it's wonderful. Knowledge is the, the continued accumulation of knowledge, of course, is a, is a worthy goal that we all aspire to. What's skill? Well, skill is defined as an ability acquired through sustained effort and continuous feedback to accomplish a complex task. Now, if that task has to do with ideas, we call them cognitive skills. If it has to do with things, we call them technical skills. If it has to do with people, we call them interpersonal skills. And the question that I would ask your audience is to reflect on where does most of your skill lie? I would bet you, Ashley, that most people in medicine, and by the way, I would say this about any profession, rests in most of the skills you use on a moment-by-moment, meeting-by-meeting, interaction-by-interaction basis are interpersonal skills because we deal with people. We're people who deal with people. And then occasionally, there are cognitive skills and technical skills. So that's skill. And then discipline, perhaps interestingly, I define as choice. Psychologists tell us we make hundreds of choices every single day. Most of them are unconscious. And so we need to make better choices when we communicate. And this brings me to some tactical things. So some of the most important concepts behind successfully selling an idea, a product, a solution are to be crisp, meaning, and that's discipline, choosing to have your, what we call in sales, your elevator pitch. And of course, the metaphor, as you know, Ashley, is I jump on an elevator with you. I've got, you know, 13 or 14 or 15 floors to communicate what I'm doing or who I am or what I do crisply and concisely. That's a both a skill and a discipline that relies on knowledge. So having an elevator pitch, writing a grant application that pops is a skill and a discipline that requires knowledge. But of course, if we write a grant application, we put everything we know into it, it will not be successful because it could be hundreds of pages. No one will review that. The skill comes from communicating in a way that's interesting using story, metaphor, analogy, which by the way, we know from the bedrock of research, story, metaphor, and analogy are much more powerful than just a raw communication of your knowledge. But it takes skill to use metaphor in the right way. And to give you an example of that, yesterday I was asked to talk about what selling looks like in this new world we live in. And the metaphor I used is, you know, we've stretched a rubber band. The world has changed. The rubber band has stretched. But unlike a rubber band, the world is not going to snap back to its original shape. So that's just a metaphor I use to talk about that. And how might we, in our communications, when we're successfully selling, how might we use metaphor, analogy, story, crispness, conciseness, elevator pitch? These are some of the many, many, many tools that elite sales performers have 
at their disposal. I hope that helps. But I wanted to set that on the foundation of knowledge, skill, and discipline because that's where it all begins. Right. And communication is one of the you know main aspects that I think underlies sales, as you've mentioned. How do good sales people use storytelling in conveying their um, their points? As you know, Ashley, this is one of my favorite subjects. I've, I've written a book called What's Your Story? So I've spent a lot of time researching and trying to understand, and I am still very much learning, by the way, um, seeking to understand how people, leaders, salespeople can equip themselves with the right story at the right time for the right reason. And, you know, the role of storytelling in sales is enormous. Why? Because a lot of research from neuroscience all the way to psychology would indicate that stories are actually our most powerful tool of influence. And I know that's a huge, bold statement. I am increasingly convinced. And, and look, I wear some bias here. I carry some bias because I'm a huge fan of storytelling and have written a book about it. But the more I look at the research, the more it strikes me that stories are your most powerful tool of influence. And again, I'm using influence, Ashley, as a synonym for sales. And the question then becomes why? And the reason we mostly believe that this is true is that stories do two things that other forms of information either don't do or don't do as well. They create context. And let me just give you an example of that. If I tell you the story of a nine-year-old girl who is suffering from a fatal disease that is entirely curable, and I stop the story right there, Every single person listening to this podcast right now pictures a nine-year-old girl. That's context. Our brains do that automatically. It's a gift that we have. Every single person. I don't have to show you a picture of this girl. I don't really have to tell you anything about her other than saying she's a nine-year-old girl and she's in peril. And you create a world of context in your brain. That's powerful. Why? Because context is what we operate in. And it's almost like fish in water. We sometimes take it for granted, but the context shapes our behaviors and our decision-making. So if I can create that context for you by which to un unpack the desirability of my solution, helping you be have better healthy habits, whatever it might be, I'm already more persuasive. So that's number one, context. Simultaneously with creating context, they connect to emotion. And as people like Daniel Kahneman and Antonio Damasio and Annette Simmons and others have taught us from their research, we make 90 to 95% of our decisions in our emotions. And so if I tell you a story that creates context and connects to your heart, your emotion, and not just your head with facts and knowledge, it is incredibly persuasive. It's generally believed that stories actually are anywhere from two to 50 times more powerful than facts. If you tell me to quit smoking by telling me that smoking kills and giving me the statistics, we all know how that's going to turn out. But you have a better chance, not 100%, I will never say that, these are not silver bullets, but you have a heck of a lot better chance by telling me a story of one person who probably looks a lot like me, same age, same lifestyle, who died of lung cancer, 
Why? Because it creates context that I can relate to and emotion that I can feel. That's why stories are two to 50 times more powerful in any form of sale, persuasion, or influence. So if we've developed some of these skills that you've mentioned and we have the base knowledge that it takes to communicate an idea or influence another, what other um, aspects does it take to be a good salesperson and how does one obtain those skills or improve in selling? The answer that you and everyone on your podcast would anticipate is the correct answer, but I'm going to unpack it. And the answer is practice. So that's not a surprise to anyone listening. However, what may be a surprise is that it must be, must be a very specific form of practice we call deliberate practice. And deliberate practice must stand on five things. You can get good at getting great at anything, including sales. So what does deliberate practice stand on? We have to set crisp, smart, goals. So we have to say, by three months from now, I am going to strive to tell my patients one great story that relates to their context and their emotion by which I will help change their behavior. And Ashley, that's just a very specific goal. 92% of people fail to, to reach any goals they set. Why? Mostly because they're not specific and they're not measurable and they don't have a coach. So it must be a specific goal. Number two, we must get out of our comfort zone. This is really hard for humans to do because we don't like being uncomfortable, myself included. Yet we know from getting good at getting great at anything, we have to be uncomfortable because that's where the learning process. And you know, as medical professionals, you know this better than anyone. You can't build muscle until you tear it a little bit. Not rip it, but tear it a little bit, little tears. That's how you build muscle. Well, that's uncomfortable. So that's how we build muscle. Same as, as, as practice when it relates to sales. Then we must have a coach who has a mental representation of what great looks like. Now, I suggested earlier in our conversation that sales or anything is built on a very powerful and simple foundation of three things, knowledge, skill, and discipline. Guess what that means? it means that's the mental representation of what great looks like. So when you tell a story to a patient to influence his or her habits to be healthier, that is that story, the ability to tell the right story at the right time for the right reason is a combination of knowledge, skill, and discipline. You have to know the story. You have to skillfully tell the story such that it unpacks context and emotion. And you have to make a decision to tell the story versus to overwhelm them with a bunch of facts and data on smoking or whatever it is. So that's a combination. We call that, it's called a mental representation of what great looks like such that Ashley can coach Craig on how to tell those stories with those patients in those situations. Ashley needs that mental representation so she can coach me. Fourth thing that has to be true of deliberate practice is we must try differently not harder. And this one gets a little subtle, but I'll, I'll leave it very concise. Most people, most parents, most coaches say, you know, just try harder. And that's fine. And it comes from a wonderful place. It's not enough. What you actually have to do with me, Craig, as my coach, is you have to say, Craig, let's try a different way to tell that story next time to the next patient. 
thereby helping me practice different ways in, different ways to operationalize the knowledge, skill, and discipline you're helping me develop. These things all have to be true. And then the fifth and final thing brings it all together. And that is you've got to have continuous feedback. So you have to watch me, Ashley, in front of my patients or when I'm in a retail store and I'm selling that lawnmower, whatever it is, my coach has to be there in some situations. Not all, of course, we can't possibly. You as my coach can turn to me and give me feedback. What did I do well? And what do I need to do differently this time? That's what it takes to get great, to get good at getting great at anything. It's a very specific form of practice called deliberate practice. Right. And I think those principles, a lot of those principles tie into excelling at many other fields as well. And so I think that's a great framework to start with. What are some of the actions or qualities that may lead to an unsuccessful sale or any behaviors you would recommend avoiding? Oh, geez. There's not to be snarky. There's too many to count. I mean, so not listening, talking over you, selling you something that you don't need, you know, and that, you know, that that's where we get back to the stereotypes, Ashley, where the moment you stop listening is the moment you get in trouble. Because if you stop listening, how do I truly understand the progress you're trying to make in your life such that I can help you? What we define here, and I'm, I'm, I'm answering your question in its opposite, the best quality of salespeople, we believe, is when they are listening and they determine that their solution is not the perfect fit. And not only do they stop selling in that very moment, they say, hey, Ashley, you know, as I'm listening to your specific and and particular needs, I'm realizing we're not the perfect fit. But you know what? I can recommend three other people who might, might be the perfect fit for you. I will do that today. That's selling. Why? Because I'm making, I'm helping you make progress in your life. So there are hundreds of qualities that lend themselves to unsuccessful selling, manipulation, right? And, and, and it just goes, it, the list goes on and on. And getting back to some more of the technical details of selling in action, um, you mentioned an elevator pitch previously and kind of described that it's a, a, a concise way of communicating a sale or your ideas what is its real purpose and what role does it play? And why is this something that's so frequently talked about? I, I, I'm going to go backwards through your question. It's a great question, Ashley. It's why is it so frequently talked about? I believe that it's because it's so hard to do. And the, 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 the analogy here, speaking of analogies, is a movie trailer. Here, a Hollywood studio has spent $80 million or $100 million. I wrote, read an article in the New York Times yesterday suggesting that some blockbusters in the near future will have billion-dollar budgets, which I just is stunning to me and shocking and appalling. But think about it this way. You, you've just produced an $80 million product, and guess what you now have to do? You have to sell it, and that is the word, sell it via a movie trailer. And the average movie trailer, I think, is about a minute 30 or a minute 37, to be precise, something like that. So you've got to distill an $80 million solution into a minute and a half. That is incredibly hard to do. There are specialized consulting firms for Hollywood studios just to do that, to create a minute and a half version 
of something that is two hours in length and has spent $80 million in its making. This is hard to do. So what are the key components? We mentioned, you know, conciseness or brevity. And I'm going to give you an example or a couple of examples here. So remember, an elevator pitch is you've got very little time to say a lot of stuff. Well, guess what the most common question you get asked in your life is? How are you? And I always ask people, do you have an interesting answer to that question? And most people just look at me blankly because they don't. They say, oh, I'm fine, Ashley. How are you? And that's an okay answer. Nothing wrong with it. It's truthful. That's the best thing it's got going for. It's truthful. I'm fine. I'm well. How are you? And we do this every single day, all day long, throughout our entire lives. But when we think about sales, and when we think about being magnetic, and when we think about persuasion and influence, we ask the question, how might you answer that in a different way? Here's my current answer to how am I? And this is 100% true. Ashley says to Craig, Craig, how are you? And I say, yeah, I'm fine. Th- I'm, I'm well. Thank you for asking. I am working on four or five of the most interesting projects I've worked on in my life. So I'm a little tired, but I'm having fun. That's my answer. It's still concise. It's not as concise as fine. Fine doesn't tell you anything. And if you stop and think for a moment, Ashley, what does my answer to how are you, Craig, tell you about me? If you stop and think about it, it tells you a lot. It tells you I'm busy, which could be a good thing. It tells you I'm working on some important projects. That could be a good thing. It tells you I'm a little goofy because I say, you know, I'm tired, but I'm having fun. I've got a little bit of a personality, I hope, right? It tells you a ton about me. And the next question you're going to ask me is where I want to go, which is, my gosh, what are, the, what are the projects you're working on? And I want to pause here because done well, Ashley, an elevator pitch creates the conversation you want to have. But I also want to be careful here because that can strike people as selfish. I disagree. I don't think it's selfish. Why? Because if I lead you into a conversation I want to have, I might be able to help you make progress. That's what the components of an elevator pitch. Be very crisp. Answer questions differently. 100% true, but differently than other people. Stand out. Differentiate yourself. Break through. Don't be the usual thing. That's very interesting. I think we've covered kind of some of the descriptors of what sales and selling can mean very broadly. And you've certainly touched upon some of the ways that this is incorporated directly into medicine and healthcare. From a practical standpoint, how do you see sales being impactful in daily life for a physician? And you've mentioned patient encounters, but what are some of the other things that you see being impacted by selling? I would answer that question with a question. And I actually do this with physicians quite often. I ask, and not just physicians, but any profession, I ask physicians, how would it impact your career, your advancement, your academic chops, and your patient encounters if you were the best communicator in your medical system? I mean, that is the question. How might we You know, that's a design thinking question. How might we be the best communicator in every meeting, at every staff meeting, in every patient interaction, on every grant application? And the answer is, it's right in front of you. And I I don't mean to suggest that it's easy. It's not easy at all. But it's straightforward. It's not easy, but it's straightforward. Because the research, 
from the likes of K. Anders Ericsson and others have shown us that we can get good at getting great at anything. Why? Because we have a flexible, adaptive brain. If you want to be able to remember 100 random numbers giving you one per second, you can do that. It's been done. This is not hyperbole. This is research. It's been done with completely normal people with a normal IQ. And so, you know, the question is that I, we should ask each other is, you know, how, how might we be the best communicator? Now, folks listening to the podcast actually might be like, okay, Craig, you know, that's unhelpful. That's, you know, so broad. And then my answer to that question would be, okay, then let's just look at patient encounters. Let's just look at research and grant writing applications. How might you write the best grant ever seen? How might you design it so it is lovely on the eye? How might you design the language such that it tells stories and uses metaphors and analogies to make your points clear while not sacrificing the academic and knowledge chops at all that are embedded in that grant application? How might you do that? And when you start asking those questions on a more granular level, you start being able to say, okay, here, you know, I need the skill and discipline of storytelling. We're going to embed a story. Now we have to go out and look for a 100% true story that will just kill it right here in our grant or in the moment of a patient interaction where they say, well, I'm not going to do that doctor. And we say, okay, let's talk about that. And we, we reach back into the metaphorical quiver of arrows that hangs on our back at all times, which is our, those arrows represent the exact right thing to say at the exact right moment. That's how we do this. It's so exciting. Like I love this stuff. And you can't find the bottom of it. It just gets more interesting every day because it's so broad. I mean, it's so, it's so deep, rather. So I think you've provided us with a great overview about, you know, how to approach sales, what it means to be a salesperson, and how that can very directly impact every interaction that we have on a daily basis. And obviously, as you've mentioned, getting better at this has to be a very deliberate process um, with concrete goals. What resources, whether they're texts or practice environments, do you recommend for our listeners who want to learn more about sales and who want to improve their skills? Well, gosh, I, I guess I have three suggestions here and sort of a, a book, a course, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow your lead, Ashley, exactly. A book and a course and sort of a practice environment. So my favorite, you know, there's a lot of great books. My favorite current book is a book called Peak. And it's by Kay Anders Ericsson, who sadly passed away a few months ago, but had did seminal research on elite performance in any field. And it's, it, he is the, his body of research is where I drew my example and my quick story of, you know, people with developing prodigious memories. So Peak is such an interesting book and it will give your listeners the architecture, if you will, of deliberate practice, which we've covered here in your, in your podcast. So that's my favorite current book. And I have a million others if people want to reach out to me. This one, this next one will be entirely self-serving, but Kellogg and I developed a course called Mastering Sales, and it really dives into and unpacks the granular knowledge, skill, and discipline to be great in any moment. So that's the, that's the course. And then your practice environment is a really interesting angle on this question. And what I would just encourage people to do, doctors, physicians, medical professionals, is to 
is to create opportunities in your daily rotations to get coaching. And what I mean by that is what we talked about earlier, Ashley, literally me saying, hey, Ashley, can you join me in this patient interaction? I will, you know, obviously HIPAA and all those things that you all know infinitely better than I do have to be in place, of course. But how might we get coaching so you can give me external feedback so I can really see what I'm doing both really well and what I should perhaps be doing differently? Because we cannot get better. And I say this very bluntly, we cannot get better unless we have coaching. It's why elite athletes are surrounded by coaches, over a dozen coaches, from a nutritionist to a stretching coach, to a strength coach, to a head coach. That's why. And so that would be my practice environment answer to your question. I think a lot of the things that you've just mentioned are very doable from our standpoint. Um, we're very familiar with coaching as surgeons. Uh, that's how we learn, essentially, and that's how residency is structured. And I think taking it another step further and implementing that you know, in the clinic setting rather than just in the operating room can help with patient interactions as well. Professor Wortman, thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Do you have any last words of advice for our listeners today? I'm going to pick up where you left off. And, and, and I love it. Actually, you said the exact right thing. I, you know, as a son of a pediatrician, I, I understand just enough to be dangerous about residency, et cetera, and remember my dad with residents. And it was just, it's fun to think back on those memories. Here's my push. My last push for all of you listening is this. When we study coaching in many different settings, coaching often falls flat. And the reason I say that is coaching usually looks like this. I follow you, Ashley, through, so now I'm, I'll be the coach. I follow you, you know, Dr. Nasiri through a patient interaction. And I say, and the patient leaves and the door closes. And I turn to you and I say, you know, Ashley, good job. Good job today. That's not coaching. That's sugar. Coaching should be directly relevant and should unpack the knowledge, skill, and discipline that you either exhibited or did not exhibit in that moment. And that requires a lot. I mean, I'm asking a lot of your listeners. We have to become great coaches who can get granular. I might say, Ashley, one of the things that I want you to consider doing differently in your patient interactions is you're listening at the surface level. And we now know from sales research that listening actually has three levels. You listen at three levels. The first one is the surface, what they're saying. The next level down is what they're feeling. And the third level underneath that is why that matters. And we have to use empathy to get to all three levels. That's my coaching. That's coaching. Not, hey, good job. So that's my last piece of advice that I hope in a way, I don't know this is true, Ashley, but I hope in a way sort of ties this whole conversation together. I think it absolutely does. Getting feedback and kind of requesting feedback from your superiors can be challenging in medicine. And that's certainly something that I think is becoming more of a hot topic in recent years. And I think that's a great way to kind of tie our discussion all together today. So thank you for that. Thanks for having me. Well, folks, that about wraps up our episode of ENT in a Nutshell. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. 